Hey everyone, what's going on? This is Mike Estefan from the University of Rochester School of Medicine, bringing you episode 9 in the Emergency Medicine Shelf Exam Review Series. This week's episode is going to be focused on cardiopulmonary emergencies. A lot of what I'm going to be covering in this episode is considered to be the bread and butter of emergency medicine. Most of you probably have the clinical presentation for many of these diseases drilled into your head from your clerkship. For example, pulmonary embolism, myocardial infarction, aortic dissection, etc. So I'm mostly going to be focusing on ways that the exam will try to trick you with these questions. I'm not really going to be focusing on the disease presentations. And just a heads up, guys, I'm currently getting over a viral pharyngitis. So if my voice sounds a little different or softer than the previous weeks, that's why. All right, let's start off with pulmonary embolism. So for pulmonary embolism, the exam typically won't make you calculate a well score or figure out if you can perk rule them out or whatever. Um, instead, usually it'll give you a vignette with a disease presentation that is obvious for a pulmonary embolism, and then it will ask for management decisions regarding this. So let's talk about how you can stratify pulmonary embolism into three different types. These types include a massive PE, a submassive PE, and a low-risk PE, which is basically anything that is not massive or submassive. A massive PE is defined as a PE with hypotension or severe bradycardia, typically less than 40. This is going to be your classic saddle embolism. For your exam, the patients with massive PEs are typically the ones that you're going to give TPA or do a thrombectomy on. The first-line treatment for massive PE is going to be TPA. If there are contraindications to TPA, that is when you do a thrombectomy. A couple examples of contraindications that could show up on your exam would be recent hemorrhagic stroke, active bleeding, or if they're on blood thinners. Submassive pulmonary embolisms are pulmonary embolisms where the patient is not hypotensive, however, they have evidence of right heart strain. Now, I just want to put this out there, that the definition of right heart strain in real life is different than for your exam. For example, the classic EKG finding associated with right heart strain is S1, Q3, T3. On the exam, this is definitely evidence of right heart strain, but in real life, this is not necessarily true. So for your exam, things that would be considered evidence of right heart strain include S1, Q3, T3 on EKG, an elevated BNP level, or an elevated troponin level. Also, they could give you an ultrasound, which would show dilation of the right ventricle, which would also be evidence of right heart strain. So, to manage these patients with a submassive PE, what you do is you give them heparin or Lovenox, and you admit them to the ICU. And yes, the exam might even ask you where you admit these patients, so these patients go to the ICU. Now, the third type of pulmonary embolism is called a low-risk PE. A low-risk PE is defined as anything that is not a massive or a submassive PE. These patients you also give heparin or Lovenox, however, they do not need to go to the ICU. They can be admitted to the floor. Fun fact. Some recent studies have shown that some of these patients can actually be discharged from the ED to go home safely. However, this is not widely practiced yet, in the U.S. at least, and is way beyond what you need to know for the exam. Alright, 
So let's do a quick recap. So you have three types of PE. Massive PEs are defined as patients who are hypotensive with their PE, and they get TPA or a thrombectomy if there is any contraindication to TPA. The second type is a submassive PE defined as normal pressures, but evidence of right heart strain. These patients get Lovenox or heparin and are admitted to the ICU. The third type is a low-risk PE, which is any PE that is not massive or submassive. These patients also get Lovenox or heparin, but are safe to be admitted to the floor. Alright, before we change topics, I just want to leave you guys with a couple more pearls for pulmonary embolism on your exam. So my first pearl is that if the patient has signs and symptoms that are classic for PE and there is no other likely cause, then you can empirically treat them with heparin or Lovenox before you get the imaging. This is true both for real life and on the exam. We actually did this during my OA rotation for one of our patients. My second pearl is that if you are suspecting PE, you need to get a BMP on all these patients because you're gonna need to diagnose that PE and you're gonna need imaging. And the imaging that you order will be dependent on their creatinine. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but this is so important. They will test you on this. They will drill you on this because if they have an elevated creatinine, you need to get a VQ scan instead of the CTA that you would usually get. I'm going to be so mad if any of you get this wrong on your exam. So make sure that you check that creatinine level if they give it to you on the vignette. My third pearl is that if there is a contraindication to anticoagulation for submassive and low-risk PEs, then you need to consider placing an IVC filter. This is a little less high yield, but is still fair game for your exam. All right, let's change gears and talk about myocardial infarctions. So I'm gonna assume that you guys know what a STEMI looks like on EKG. So we're gonna just talk about a couple special cases that you need to be aware of for your exam. So let's say they give you an EKG and you see ST elevation in leads two, three, and AVF. What kind of STEMI are they having? Good, this is an inferior STEMI. Now, inferior STEMIs are special for two reasons. The first reason is that they can involve the AV node. And the second reason is that they can involve the right ventricle. So, if the vignette gives you a patient with chest pain and bradycardia, you should think of an inferior STEMI. Now, just a couple pearls for you guys regarding inferior STEMIs. Because of the risk of AV node involvement, you do not give these patients beta blockers. And if they become bradycardic, you can treat that with atropine. My second pearl is that if the infarction involves the right ventricle, these patients are going to become very preload dependent. That means you do not give these patients nitro, okay? If these patients start to crash, you give them aggressive fluid resuscitation because of how preload dependent they become. So what are the three contraindications for giving nitroglycerin to a patient who comes in with chest pain? So I already mentioned the first one, which is the possibility of a right ventricular infarction, which can occur with inferior STEMIs. The second one is the presence of hypotension. And the third one is current sildafanil usage aka Viagra. Alright, let's talk about aortic dissections. 
So let's say you suspect aortic dissection in a patient. What is the general workup for this? So usually at a minimum, you start with a chest x-ray to look for mediastinal abnormalities, and you also get a BMP to look at their creatinine. After that chest x-ray, you can move on to a CT chest with contrast, assuming their renal function is okay from that BMP that you ordered previously. Now, you need to know the two types of dissections because that will influence how you manage the dissection. Type A is considered to be an ascending aortic dissection, and type B is considered to be a descending aortic dissection. Type A ascending aortic dissections are considered surgical emergencies, and so in this case on the exam, you would immediately send this patient to the OR. Type B dissections, which are descending, can be managed medically, at least in the ED initially. They will need surgery at some point at a later time, but it's not an emergent basis for surgery. And typically for the exam, all they're going to want you to know is that you need to beta block these patients. You want to get their heart rate down, and you want to make sure they're not hypertensive. So typically, esmolol is going to be the correct answer, or labetalol. So I ran into a really mean question on one of the banks, and I think it's actually pretty fair game for your exam. Basically what happened is you diagnosed an ascending aortic dissection in a patient, and while you were working them up a little bit, um, they started crashing, and you got an EKG, and it showed a STEMI. Then I asked what you wanted to do. I initially picked send them to the cath lab, because I was like, STEMI equals cath lab, but that was the wrong answer. What ended up happening was that the patient dissected into their coronary arteries, and caused a STEMI. The cause of the STEMI was the dissection. Placing a stent in this dissected coronary artery is not going to do anything. These patients need emergent surgery. Alright, I'm going to end this episode with a couple high yield pearls for a bunch of different diseases that I'm not really going to go into too much depth on because I assume you probably see these cases every single day in the ED. So when it comes to CHF, diuresis is obviously one of the mainstays of treatment. The one thing I want to mention is that if you determine that the patient needs fluids, but they're in CHF, don't give them a liter bolus. Give them a quarter liter or a half liter on your exam. For COPD exacerbations, you guys all know that they need antibiotics and steroids. In the case of either CHF or COPD exacerbations, if the patient is in respiratory distress, you need to give them either CPAP or BiPAP. And lastly, I just want to briefly touch on pneumonia. The way that the exam is going to test you on pneumonia is not going to be by reading a chest x-ray, usually, although they might, um, but more so in my experience is going to be the risk factors that the patient has and that influencing how you treat their pneumonia. For instance, if the exam gives you a patient who is either an alcoholic, is homeless, has dementia, or has Parkinson's, and they come in with symptoms of pneumonia, you need to treat them for aspiration pneumonia. Now, the treatment for aspiration pneumonia involves coverage of anaerobes. So whatever antibiotic they give you that covers anaerobes will be the correct answer in this case. If the patient has been hospitalized recently, 
or been on a ventilator recently, you need to cover both Pseudomonas and MRSA, which is typically accomplished with Vank and Zosin, although some institutions will give double coverage for Pseudomonas depending on their risk factors. My next pearl is that if a patient comes in with symptoms of pneumonia, but they also have a weird symptom that doesn't fit with pneumonia, such as diarrhea or belly pain, then you should consider Legionella pneumonia. If a patient comes in after just getting over the flu with a very severe pneumonia, this is classically a MRSA pneumonia. And if the patient comes in with pneumonia-like symptoms and they're young and relatively healthy, it's probably going to be a community-acquired pneumonia like mycoplasma. These patients will do well on azithromycin. And that's about all I have for you guys this week. I'm kind of sad to say that next week is going to be the last episode in the series, but you guys are probably pretty excited to hear Zach's voice again, so I don't blame you guys at all. Anyways, until next week, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.